everyone, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode and every episode that you listen to loving the weather just that little bit more. Hi, I'm meteorologist Gemma. Hello there, I'm meteorologist and weather presenter Ashling, And in this episode, we are going to speak to David Cran. Now, David Cran is an expert in aviation. What a what a broad a broad thing to say. David is an absolute expert at what he does, but he's worked in aviation for 34 years in a range of roles, including air traffic control, airfield operations, airport manager, meteorological observer. He's worked at both big and small airfields, which do require a lot of very different handling. I definitely know that. And you've handled a range of air traffic from hot air balloons to big aircraft, such as the A380 and even Air Force One. So exciting. David is currently Group Compliance and Assurance Lead for Manchester Airport Group, which covers Manchester, East Midlands and Stansted Airport. That is quite quite a list we've got there, David. You're very welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for allowing me to come on and talk to you. I'm pretty much sure that your 34 years are not going to get covered in this podcast. <laughs> I only did aviation for about maybe four years, five years. And so I can't imagine what 34 years teaches you. <laughs> well, you do get to see a lot of different weather and certainly working shift. You see some very good sunrises, uh, definitely. You definitely get to know who's a good person to work with on shift and who's a bad <laughs> person to work with on shift. But as always, we start each episode by asking their guest where their love of what they have done has come from. So I'm guessing for you, it would have started up with at some point looking up at the sky either at clouds or at airplanes or possibly both uh, a little bit of both so um i'm originally from devon and we brought up um right in the in the sticks in a tiny little hamlet and my dad was a farm laborer so um sort of with a farming background you're very tied to the weather so i always knew what what was going on particularly sort of the seasons harvest etc but also where we were, we used to get a, a lot of overflying aircraft. So for a long time, I wanted to be a farmer, and then I keep seeing these aircraft flying over. Um, you know, even the the sound of a of a, a light aircraft in the summer sort of reminds me of those long summer sort of um, uh, down in Devon. So um, yeah, I kind of decided against the farming because that did look like really long hours, and then I'll try aviation because that's not long hours. Right? <laughs> well, little did I know. Little did I know. <laughs> I guess you've got one very, though, commonality there in that you're actually working quite close to the land and you're constantly watching the sky and what's happening around you and having to make decisions based on environmental factors. There is actually quite a lot in common there. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I started, uh, I originally wanted to be a pilot and unfortunately, um, for medical reasons, I couldn't pass the medical for the RAF. So um, I opened up, uh, this is probably a date meet, the yellow pages and anything connected with aviation, I just rode away to. And there was a job at Exeter Airport for a briefing clerk. So effectively just taking the landing feed and passing out the weather pack to the pilot. So any aircraft that's flying for commercial reasons must have a an actual um weather uh, and a forecast of where they're going to so they know that they can actually conduct the flight safely or within their, their requirements and so part of that then I got sent on a Met Observers course so I could do the official um, weather observations for Exeter Airport and so that uh, meant um, a week at uh, Shimfield Park near Reading the, um, where the Met Office used to be based 
looking at clouds and just saying what they were and temperatures and dew points and pressures, etc. And then, which was more interesting for me, uh, then a week at RS St. Morgan, as it was, Newquay Airport now, um, and uh, shadowing uh, the weather forecast there to sort of craft it. You have a really big book that you just have to open up and, and describe the, the, um, the half-hour weather observations and put in specials if anything, any of the criteria change. So that was the real start of, of learning, the, the, just looking out the window and seeing what it's doing. So that now is all sign. So that's sign up code that you're talking about. So, mm. do you want to tell us a little bit about what sign up code is, and tell us what a special is as well? Uh, yeah. So um, it's very important for uh, pilots to know exactly what the weather's doing at the time. So um, surface wind and speed and direction. So if you take just something as, as simple as as a, a fixed wing aircraft, it's actually the airflow of the wing that, that generates the lift. Um, so you get a uh, uh, low pressure above the wing and a, and a high pressure below the wing. So effectively, you could argue, you know, the aircraft are getting sucked up into the air. So they they generate uh, more lift if they're um, taking off into winds, just like birds do. So they need to know the wind speed and direction. But then there's also the visibility criteria, the types of cloud um, and the heights. There's two direct types of cloud that they need to know, uh, cumulonimbus and towering Q, because that, that affects uh, their operations as well as then the temperature and dew point, which gives an indication of how saturated the air is. The temperature also gives an indication of how dense the air is and, and uh, wings as well as um, engines perform better at colder temperatures. And, um, and then something called, um, we, we love codes and acronyms in aviation, so something called um, the Q&H. So that's the, the relative air pressure uh, above sea level. Um, so uh, without going into too much detail, but if you, if you you're in a plane, you've got something called an altimeter. If you were just to sat on the apron over a course of a week, you'll see your aircraft kind of rising and falling in, in relative height, according to the altimeter, because effectively the altimeter is just like a barometer, and it's measuring the air pressure. So when you have highs and lows crossing the airfield uh, it, uh, in pressure, you'll see your altimeter going up and down. So they constantly need to be calibrated so the aircraft knows how high it is above a particular datum. That could be the aerodrome or it could be the um, sea level. So if ever you listen to um, any sort of uh, phraseology being taught to uh, to pilots, you'll constantly hear when initially um, uh, talking is is what the, the QNH or the QFE is. And that's the, the pressure either above sea level or above the aerodrome. Because if you're taking off from the aerodrome, you just tend to land back at the aerodrome. You want to know how high you are above the aerodrome. But if you're actually going somewhere and you need to look on your chart and see, well, I want to avoid masts or mountains, I need to know, and all the masts and mountains on your map are measured above sea level. I need to know how how I am above sea level. So that's when you'd use the QNH. So the different pressure settings gives that that different data for the the pilots. And a special is when one of those criteria have changed. You suddenly need to let all the air all the air crews know at the same time be a, 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 a change in the the pressure or the, the fact um, the wind speed is is changing direction or gusting or there's different types of um, uh, change in visibility or um, or cloud types, particularly if they're cumulonimbus or town and Q. So my biggest uh, discomfort, shall we call it, was if I had gone for a biz, uh, bearing in mind it was low flying aviation. Mm. And let's say I know below 300 meters, they can't do certain things. <laughs> And you see, you know your your viz points, and also 
the machine is telling you and your eyes are telling you <laughs> it's definitely not 300 it's 200 <laughs> it's like absolute nightmare everything you're talking about that was very much resonating with me and actually it's really making me smile because I loved my time in aviation I absolutely loved it, it made me such well, I suppose it sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet here, but made me such a good forecaster and actually observing the sky, all those clouds you're talking about naming. I mean, if you're watching the sky, you can tell what's happening with the weather from the clouds. They tell you, they literally tell you what's happening and what's going to happen for, you know, even sometimes depending on what type of cloud it is, the higher it up it is, when, you know, what it's going to be like in the next 24 or 48 hours. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I do remember when I was sort of studying, you know, that that sun as viewed through ground glass, which was like the approaching front. So you knew actually, no, rain's definitely coming. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you, you get all that, even just as, like I say, we, the job was just to give the actuals. But um, at smaller airports, when you opened up, you, you wouldn't get a main forecast from the Met Office until you produced two actuals so they could confirm what was happening at the moment to verify the forecast. So invariably, as a air traffic control system, you turn up sort of um, an hour before the first flight, so you could get those two actuals out, and you were looking at them like, "What is it? What, what height is that?" Yeah. And this was when I first started. This was before laser cloud-based recorders. Yeah. Um, and we used to have um, uh, something extra for at night. We had an old Second World War searchlight, an Allardade, so you could shine the searchlight up onto the cloud base, and then you had a chart to read off the angle to work out how high the cloud was at night. So laser cloud-based recorders have made that bit so much easier. So clever how they did it before. So it's pretty, it's quite amazing. And also the cloud-based recorders are amazing now for things like, you know, forecasting for, uh, you know, unusual clouds that might appear in the stratosphere, like where you're, mm. you know, picking up uh, moisture up at much higher levels. You can hear, we could probably talk about observations <laughs> for quite a bit. I love a taff and a meteor myself. <laughs> but anyway, let's play on, right? So you've got through all of this, uh, weather observing you're falling more and more in love with it is working at an airport extra airports uh, well now it's a busiest busyish mm. airport not one of the busiest fast forward now to some of the bigger airports so put all this into context as an operations manager now who are you talking to right so somewhere like um uh Stan said so it's a 24-hour operation sort of 670 odd movements a day on a busy day you know up to 53 movements an hour so obviously, um, your main concern is that safe, um, you know, aircraft are incredibly elegant in the air, but they're a bit ungainly on the ground because they've got this tiny little retractable undercarriage. And so you need to make sure that it's a safe surface for them to operate, as well as for the, the passengers and crew to get to and from the aircraft. So you're constantly looking at, um, at what the weather's doing. So summer months are a lot easier than in winter months as you can imagine although there are still problems so uh, with recent sort of really hot weather um, there, there can be issues such as flight performance like I said so that's just the temperature the air density that the, the warmer the air gets the less dense it is and it's the air density that gives the performance to the engines and also the lift so the um, uh, the pilots are constantly recalculating that and it could be on a, on a shorter runway that uh, pilots will either need to um, not carry as much fuel and do what we call a tech stop somewhere else if they're going a long way to get additional fuel if they can't actually depart off the, the runway at full length or actually offload uh, cargo or passengers. Very rarely offloading passengers because that, that you get a lot more complaints <laughs> that way. But I have worked, uh, when I worked at uh, Bristol Airport, um, we used to have uh, quite small um, aircraft that would do um, 
flights quite quite far away and um, in the summer because Bristol Airport was a little bit higher so again you also need um, air density uh, that, that they would have to offload um, uh, some some cargo or do a tech stop on the way which adds to the flight simply because of that and then actually recently um, with really hot temperatures because of course your surface of your runway is made of asphalt invariably we have asphalt runways and uh, concrete uh, taxiways and aprons uh, in northern Europe and that's simply because um, where your aircraft are standing for a long time if you have an asphalt surface they can sink into it but concrete um, is nice and robust it's called what we call a rigid surface um, and if you have any fuel spills then it doesn't eat away the bitumen so you see some concrete aprons but the, the concrete takes a long time to repair, so you wouldn't want the runway out of action if you had to repair it. So asphalt's quick to repair, but does have a slightly lower melting point. So the runway surface can get 45 to 60 degrees, uh, you know, in really hot weather. So um, we use something called uh, Groove Marshall Asphalt, which is a, an aviation mix for our asphalt. But as the, the runways get old, they last about sort of 15 years with wear and tear and UV light making the bitumen brittle. You can have failures um, in really hot summers we're starting to experience now. Um, I was actually just about to say you were talking about Bristol Airport. There's nothing more of a sinking feeling than seeing Bristol going into fog at 4 a.m. Uh, well, the unique thing this tap is all wrong. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to be very fair to my colleagues at Bristol Airport. So uh, when I was working there, Bristol was actually built as a bad weather training aerodrome for the RAF. So it was built up. Bristol Lullsgate was built up on a hill. So they know there's very, you know, be, sometimes working there, you have 25 knot fog, which was quite because it was just right on the hill. And you'd have days where you'd not see any aircraft uh, operate and they'd all go to Cardiff or Birmingham. Um, so it does suffer there. What they have been able to do, uh, despite the topography, they've actually been able to kink the road around and get a better what we call instrument landing system, ILS. So um, there's different categories and they've been able to get a, a category three, uh, which means that um, aircraft can make it in with lower visibility criteria. So you get a lovely view from the tower up there. Um, you can see right across the, the Bristol Channel into Wales and, and the Seven Bridge. But yeah, it was prone to a lot of fog, <laughs> very fast moving fog in the winter. Yeah, it's a bizarre little place. I think it's 600 metres up, isn't it, from memory? Maybe it is very hard. Yeah. I, I don't think it's quite hard. I think it's the second highest licensed aerodrome in the country. I, I can't remember yeah. if it's Dunk as well or somewhere up in Scotland that, that's higher as a licensed aerodrome. But yeah, no, they're quite unique. So you just mentioned some ILS there. Do you want to talk a little bit about instrument landing yeah. systems? So um, obviously uh, there's different types of flying. So there's something called VFR, visual flight rules. So if you're flying in a little aircraft, and I did uh, have um, my uh, training from a pilot's license. So I was flying in a little sort of uh, propeller um, driven four-seater aircraft. And I had to fly called uh, VFR, visual flight rules. So there was certain weather criteria. And the way I would uh, avoid bumping into things like hills, as well as other aircraft, is I had certain um, cloud and visibility criteria and minima that I could flight so basically it had to be a really nice day so i could look out the window and see in the void but obviously if you're traveling to spain on your holidays it wouldn't be very good if the pilot says well it's cloudy today i can't fly so there's something called instrument flight rules so that's where the pilots are actually operating on their instruments so they can fly through through cloud um and that's fine uh, because they're under full air traffic control so they won't bump into to mountains and they won't bump into each other but they still need to at some point land. So if it's foggy conditions, it's, they need to have something on the ground that they can lock onto. And the instrument landing system makes two parts. So basically as a localizer, which gives them effectively their uh, left and right guidance. 
and then there's a glide path which gives them the up and down guidance and they can lock onto that and then follow that down and somewhere like Heathrow pretty much has uh, sort of blind landings where the aircraft can lock on and follow it all the way down. There's lots of what we call safeguarding on the ground that we need to do to make sure that these instrument landing systems aren't um, deviated so they have very large protection areas so if I was to drive my Land Rover through those areas while it's being used there's monitor systems that would decouple the aircraft so because basically the, the metal vehicle would deviate the beams. I don't want to, don't want to do that then. No, <laughs> it's not quite like the Die Hard 2 movie. Yeah. It's certainly not like that. But, yeah, no, it's incredibly well um, safeguarded. Uh, but that's how we can kind of um, yeah. guarantee pretty much operation. But you get different versions of them. So each air, so for a pilot, it's not only the airport that has to have the certain type of instrument landing system, and that depends on the minute. The aircraft needs to be equipped with the right equipment and the pilots need to be trained. So there's that you need all three lined up to be able to, to maximize you know, the poorest visibility. So sometimes you can be delayed simply because a bit of kit isn't working in the aircraft or um, all the pilots aren't, aren't trained to that standard to be able to follow. We're all speaking the same language. That's yeah. what we hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely experience when you land in fog. Like I was flying once and we were going through this fog. You couldn't see anything. And all of a sudden we were on the, on the runway and I was like, did they just land this plane literally you couldn't see uh, anything outside the windows i was like that is some impressive landing and it's so impressive when they land in that dense fog yeah i mean um you know the, the good thing about fog particularly sort of radiant face and most fog and uh bristol aside is it's normally steel air so actually the aircraft doesn't get the turbulence as it's coming in in foggy conditions because actually it's still air uh, when i used to work at exeter because it was it wasn't very high i think it was about 102 feet um uh, above sea level and you have the river x you get a lot of radiation fog and we used to get a bryman airways coming up from plymouth that would drop into exeter and then fly on up to gatwick and the number of times you could look up and you could see it flying overhead but because you had uh, maybe a hundred foot of, of um sort of low-lying sort of radiation fog as they kind of enter the approach they get what we call something slant face so they're actually looking for a deeper sort of uh, distance of, of fog and they would have to go around because they reached their minimum not being able to then see the runway and had to go around yet you could then look up and see it in the clear blue sky. So it must be incredibly frustrating for those passengers sat next to seeing their plane then divert and carry on up to Gatwick. It reminded me of all of my exams, slant visibility, horizontal visibility. <laughs> Do you know, let, um, you touched off something there, actually, that uh, I think is in everybody's psyche at the moment, perhaps more so this year than ever before. And you mentioned about it's becoming a bit, you know, we've had a lot of hot air, the runways are getting broken down a little bit quicker. Seasons are changing. How have you observed climate through your job? It's clearly, would it would have meandered through it, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, th I think we'd be definitely seeing um, more extremes. And I think that that's fair enough to say for everyone. I mean, to the point that the Department of Transport write to the, uh, to the major airports in the UK um, every year to say, how are you prepared? for these different things. And they, they will cover, like, what's your protection against flooding? And again, poor old Exeter Airport recently with the, the, the horrific um, uh, downpours they had with that thunderstorm activity to get flooded. But Gatwick, unfortunately, had a, a very bad Christmas where they um, they got flooded and, and it flooded their sort of generators, so they lost power. So so we're being asked to kind of look at you know, what's, our, what's our resilience against these different extreme weathers. And it can be um, incredibly strong winds to the point that, you know, you reach your maximum wind speed, you can't open the aircraft doors because it's not safe to disembark passengers. You know, it's over the air bridge um, limitations. 
obviously uh, touched on flooding, um, you know, the extreme uh, cold weather, um, you know, regular sort of frost and sort of de-icing of aircraft and you know and just again the environmental impacts of the chemicals you're putting on on the aircraft and actually how can you uh, manage that and, and ensure 100% safety uh, but then have a, an eye on the, the impact that you're having on the environment so when I very first started we had some incredible products um, that you could put on the ground but probably weren't very environmentally friendly so what you could hear the ice cracking that, that they were that effective whereas now We've got a lot more environmentally friendly products, but it does change the way that you actually use them because it um, uh, sort of take uh, aircraft de-icer. So it has a high BOD, bio-oxygen demand. So when it gets into the water courses, um, bacteria like to feed on it because it's a, a glycol mix. And um, it's a bacteria multiplying that then takes oxygen out of the water. So we need to make sure that we retain all the runoff from the runways and from the openings where the aircraft are being de-iced capture in what's called balancing ponds and basically allow this, this bacteria to break down all the, the glycol and the icer and then re-aerate the ponds, put, put um, water back in, uh, air back into it uh, to the point that it then meets our what we call discharge consents with the, the, the rivers authority where we can then discharge that water back effectively as clean with the air um, correct oxygen levels so that um, it's not causing any impact on the fish. Um, Scandinavian countries have a glycol recovery um, system because they use it so much more, obviously, in colder climates, where it's actually trying to recover that aircraft um, de-icing. And it might be hypocritical, but I've heard that the glycol can never be reused for aircraft de-icing because it has to be a certain grade, but is good enough for cost syrup because uh, that has a lot of glycerin in it. So, uh, so good for human consumption, but you can't use it again on uh, aircraft. The fact that somebody has figured that out is mind-blowing. <laughs> I feel like we can't have you on the podcast and not chat about snow. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like we have <laughs> we have to chat about snow and the impact that snow can have on airport operations and aircrafts and maybe delaying people's flights. So David, yes. basically you need to tell us <laughs> everything you know about snow. Right. Well, uh Oh, crack it where do i start so um yeah snow can be quite a problem with aviation so if we just start again from from the aircraft themselves so basically anything that uh, is on the wing so frost or snow that basically affects the ability uh, of the aircraft's lift um uh, aircraft icing can actually sort of add weight to the aircraft and it can cause some issues that way but the main thing is because you want a clean airflow to get that pressure differential for a wing to work you want to have a nice smooth uh, surface so just on a, on a cold night when it's frosty um, the aircraft will need to anti-ice to make sure that there's no frost on the wing if you've got snow you need to get rid of that snow first and then treat the ice underneath um, in the UK we have we're maritime uh, temperate climate. So we do tend to have very high water content snow, which is great if you want to make snowmen and snowballs, uh, but it's terrible if you're trying to have friction, <laughs> high friction surfaces. Um, so it doesn't take a lot of snow before we would have to close the runway and, and taxiways and clear them. Um, to give you an idea, we, we had an operator at uh, Stansted um, that was able to take their Boeing 767, so really big, sort of like um, 350-seater air aircraft, and go down to Antarctica and land on the pack ice uh, there. Because actually, very 
dry snow below minus 15, you can land on it. We have Father Christmas flights to go up to Lapland and land on snow-covered runways because it, it's, it's effectively powder snow. So if you're into skiing, powder snow, really good. Uh, but three millimeters of slush, and I have to close the runway and sweep it off. Um, and slush, for the technical terms, is it makes a splatting sound if you use a heel-toe action on the surface. So that's how we decide if you've got slush as opposed to, to wet snow. Even sort of wet snow, we can go up to about 13 millimeters before we know it starts affecting the braking actions. But 13 millimeters over a three kilometer runway is, is not very much. So um, it doesn't take much. So we do see all the press saying, oh my goodness, you know, Britain's ground to a halt again. You know, and, and how do the Europeans do it? All of our snow kit is bought from Europe. It, it's European grade snow kit. And occasionally when we do get very dry snow and we've had a few winters where there's been nice weather. my kit drives down the runway we have a, a, a 11 what we call prime movers that can cover the whole width of the runway and drive down with brushes snow blowers and blades and we can clear the, the three kilometer runway in 20 minutes and it's, it's a breeze whereas once you get slushy snow and then it freezes solid and causes ridges and yeah so to a certain extent we had the wrong kind of snow and and there are changes um to give you an idea we used to have halogen lights all our runway lights used to be halogen lights so two hops touch now we've got an led which again is, is great from the environmental point of view because it's, it takes a lot less energy to uh to turn them on um and keep them running but there's no heat so again we would end up probably closing quicker to clear the snow off the, the lights now because then they're, they're not melting the snow like they used to so I talk about uh, wet and dry snow. So, you know, it's all about that dew point. Where has your air come from? And I distinctly recall a night uh, on an airfield where we were transitioning from a maritime to a polar air mass. But like always, these things take 24 to 36 hours. So the first night knew it was going to be a nightmare or sort of early hours, you know, because obviously... There's the other complicated element of if there's showers, is the shower going to hit the runway? But as you transition into a maritime or a polar air mass or something that has much lower dew points, then you kind of know as your nights go on, if you're established in that air mass, then your nights are going to be easier to clear the runway or you won't have to worry about it as much because obviously it's just really powdery. But most of the time in the UK, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Indeed. No, it's unfortunate. And like you say, it's and it's very much the time of day that, that it hits. So the, the worst time for snow for most big airports in the UK is sort of like six o'clock in the morning, because that's what we call first wave. So, um, you know, we've, we've quietened down overnight, um, just cargo flights. Likewise, Heathrow sort of like starts up. They have a night curfew. Uh, we are standard. It is 24-7, same in Manchester and East Midlands. But when you start having the passenger flights and you're all trying to go out and it's snowing then, it's very hard to recover. Whereas if it happens sort of two or three o'clock in the morning, you get a chance to be able to work on it and have it ready for the first wave. So it has less impact. So it really does depend when it's happening. And once you start clearing snow, if you've got sort of like 15 millimeters across the entire runway, once you start tying up because you're sweeping it up, then you've got to carry on. So you're committed then and you want to move it as much as you can because if you let it then freeze, then you've got concrete effectively. So you want to deal with the snow as much as you can while it's still movable. And that's not even to then count if it's starting to drift or, or whatever. So, yeah, so the wind speed. And then once you've opened, because invariably there's great pressure, because aircraft are possibly already in the air. So there's great pressure to open the runway to allow these aircraft to land without diverting. Um, and as soon as you 
open and start having aircraft movements is much harder than move your snow kit around. And if it's still snowing, invariably you're in something called low visibility procedures, which ATC then have to, air traffic control, then have to restrict the number of movements. So it then takes much longer. So it, it is quite a protracted operation. And in the UK, normally airports are blessed with multiple runways. So there's only actually sort of parallel runways. There's only Heathrow and, and Manchester. So you don't have the luxury of some of the other airports where you clear one runway, let them land on that while you're then clearing the other. So, um, so we tend to work in a summer operation all the way all the year round in the UK and then just switch to winter operation when it's forecast to snow. So we're constantly um, buying into uh, additional sort of local uh, weather forecasting so we can see you know, what's going to happen with our own airfield. But I do remember one, uh, into, um, I'm trying to remember when that was, what year that was, when the, all the weather came up from the south. So basically sort of it hit Gatwick, Heathrow, uh, and uh, Luton and was moving up. So we were the last airport. Open. So we get loads of diversions from all the other airports and then it hit us. So then we were closed as well. So you had lots of planes that you weren't expecting and ground handlers weren't expecting those because you only have enough ground handlers for the planes that you're normally expecting and suddenly a load of other planes turn up. So there's always delays. So that doesn't appease the passengers very much if they're then sat on. They're not even at the airport they want to be on and now they're sat for ages waiting to get offloaded. I tell you, there's nothing worse landing in Stansted if you're expected to land in Gatwick. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you talk from experience there. So. <laughs> I just, you know, yeah. when you, um, yeah, you know, there would have been a point in my life where I would have known all of those tafts and forecasts and they would have just, you know, you'd live and breathe them, don't you? But um, they're so far away. Yeah. And if you're visiting London and you don't know anything about London, you think, oh, it's just a London airport. But it's not. No. no. And I think I think you know it is difficult because we've got so good, um, I wouldn't say complacent, but aviation's got so robust that actually, you know, it the, the capacity is for all those ideal conditions. So to the point at, at Heathrow, even in foggy conditions, Heathrow is maxed out all its operations and can't effectively has got too many movements if it's foggy because if it's foggy you have to basically increase the spacing between aircraft uh, on final approach and there's just not enough airspace to do that so anyway they can do it is actually cancel flights which is really upsetting for people uh if your flight's cancelled but if they then schedule it as though oh every day might be foggy then actually that's capacity that they're not allowing so um so it's it's hard um to kind of get that judgment call of, of how much do you commit so you know, mm. you don't unnecessarily reduce your capacity. Places like Stansted, we have a, it's almost like a, um, a fire break. So we, we're maxed out on runway movements for the first three hours of the day. And then we deliberately don't schedule maximum number of runway movements. So if it has been foggy and those aircraft are getting delayed, we've got um, kind of almost a fire break to move those those um, additional flights into to catch up for the number of rotations. Because an average sort of uh, low-cost operator at Stansted is trying to get sort of four to five rotations a day to maximize that airframe. I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are that you don't think that, well, I don't think heat row fogs out as much anymore. No, I mean, they, I mean, they certainly didn't used to ever get snow and, and whether it was because the pain winds from, from the city kind of always just kept it that few degrees higher and we don't, but there was, if, if a passenger did have to endure that time, and again, I think it was to run up to a Christmas break. It always seems to be bank holiday or or Christmas, uh, where they they um, they had 
uh, thick fog for a number of days and there was a real backlog and of course there's not enough spare capacity in, in the thing if your flight's cancelled where do you put all these passengers if the next flight's already full and being Christmas break so they had to have marquees installed to hold all the baggage and take it on all the hotels so it, it probably doesn't as well as aircraft technology meaning able to cope in um, you know uh, sort of minimum kind of weather conditions as, as much as possible so um but it, it, yeah, it's a tricky one. But they have a something called a delay cancellation uh, matrix where they look and they ask the airlines, look, it's better to have some flights running on time and strip out the ones that maybe aren't as full uh, rather than everyone try to operate and just cause everyone to kind of fall over. And they, they kind of work that with the airlines to look, you know, it, it's important. It's going to be foggy. Which ones do you want to cancel so that you save the rest of the operation? Because you don't want the plane and the pilot somewhere else. As, as we've seen with the delay from the air traffic that we recently had, so the air traffic um, computer failure, that was only a relatively short time, but it took days to recover because all the airlines and the crews were all out of sync and out of place and not where they want to be. And it takes quite a long time because there's just so much sort of um, maximum capacity in the operation. A lot of people, when they're flying, will have experienced turbulence. Mm. What is turbulence? What are they actually feeling when they're when they're in the aircraft? Well, you can get all sorts of uh, different types of turbulence caused by different things. So it depends on how high your aircraft are. So prior to the Second World War, everyone was flying in the troposphere. So literally, that, that's the, the band around the Earth that most of our weather sits in. So you're always bumping around with all, all that weather because you've got so much um, air movement, uh, not only sort of caused by the mount, you know, mountains and, and the air moving over there and getting uh, swirled around, but also the vertical uplift. So if you have um, a lot of thermal activity or unstable air, so uh, I mentioned the cumulonimbus and, and towering cumulus uh, clouds. So that's a lot of vertical movement. So uh, to the point that aircraft avoid cumulonimbus and ideally uh, towering cumulus simply because of the amount of turbulence they'd experience there. As you get higher, you can have something called CAT, which is clear air turbulence. So the, the air is so dry that there's not a cloud formed by the movement of, of that air. So actually, you can't you can't see it. You can potentially forecast it because you can see if it's down from a, a mountain wave or, or a, but also they rely on pilots' reports that, that they've experienced that turbulence. So when you see them ping on their, their seatbelt sign and you're up in the cruise at sort of 37,000 feet, it's likely that, that they've either had a a previous pilot report or they have seen um, the upper forecast of, of turbulence and effectively it's just like eddy current in in the air just like you'd see in water but it, it yeah obviously it feels quite it can feel quite extreme in, in an aircraft so potentially um not enough to bring an aircraft down but um it can be enough to put the um the the uh, flight trolley um Sort of hitting the ceiling and back down again. So you have had flight attendants unfortunately break limbs in severe turbulence. Um, uh, but invariably, that's because the pilots haven't seen it so clear clear air turbulence, and they have to operate with either they have to have working weather radar. So if you're if you're on a commercial flight, it has to have working weather radar, or it has to a forecast where they know they're not going to have any turbulence. So invariably, they're always working with weather, weather radar so they can see the um, the cumulonimbus clouds or the towering to avoid those. But that can cause other delays anyway. So uh, if we get a lot of thunderstorm activity that kind of is between, say, Europe and us, that, that they can have a big impact on uh, aircraft operations. There's so many things going on there. I think also think 
people would be surprised to hear that the aircrafts have instruments on them that were called weather elements that then get fed into the weather models that then we use for the forecasting mm. there'll be people that won't won't be aware that that's happening while they're on their plane flying along while i'm da- down here doing my forecasting it's running on observations that are coming from the aircraft that they're they're flying on i always think that's really interesting well yeah i mean definitely i mean the, the again when i very first started uh in aviation in, in the, the late 80s um, you know, we had our own Met Office at uh, Exeter Airport and you used to see them go out and put up the weather balloon. They checked there was no flying and let, let off this, this weather balloon and, and, ta- and that would then feed back sensors. Now there's so many aircraft in here with, with very accurate sensors, it makes sense to use those to uh, send that very accurate data back and, and help formulate your uh, forecast models. They still send up a sand, a couple of sands every day across the UK. Yes, uh, I'm not far from uh, Cardington, so that there used to be um, regular, um, well, to the point you'd still see the warnings so not to fly over there because there might be net balloons sent up. I've never found one of those boxes. I hear stories about people finding them in fields. Oh, right. I've not, yeah. <laughs> Didn't Owen oh. once say, when we spoke to him, that a weather balloon, someone, a past guest said a weather oh, balloon yeah. landed in their garden oh. and that's what sparked I their mean, interest in the weather? I would just be so thrilled (laughs) (laughs) once had a lot of hot air balloons land i used to rent a room in a farmhouse uh when i was working at bristol airport and um bristol's home to cameron balloons so they're the company that built um uh, richard branson's balloon when he went across uh atlantic and so there was a big balloon fiesta at Ashton Court, and uh, this one day they were all blowing out towards the Bristol Channel. So obviously they didn't really want to go right off and, and visit Wales. So they were all landing um, in the fields owned by this farmer, and uh, and they all obviously they, they have to then recover those balloons. So um, I had loads of people uh, knocking on the door saying, "Could we drive our Land Rover and, and trade and pick up this balloon basket?" And as a way of thank you, not that it was my land. Here's a bottle of whiskey. I think I had about 23 bottles of whiskey that day. So, uh, yeah, it did very well. It's obviously the currency of hot air ballooning. Yeah, Blackham, they do have uh, almost, uh, because of the distances they travel, it is quite short. They have almost like ordnance survey charts printed out, and there would be like different kind of warnings compared with standard aviation charts. These, these warnings would have, oh, you know, there's livestock in the field there, or unfriendly farmer, shotgun. So they kind of know the bits where they don't want to land and damage any crops. Tricky old forecasts, the hot air balloon ones. Oh, yes, very much. So if ever you book a hot air balloon, um, it, yeah. Um, it's unlikely to go up. Yeah. <laughs> <Unfortunately>, <laughs> on the day you, of your voucher. <laughs> on the day of your voucher. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, the, the weather criteria for balloons, it has to be incredibly light winds. So invariably, it's, it's early in the morning. So it's always an early start. Um, and you need you need some wind, otherwise you're just going to go up and, and hover over the same field. But you don't really want anything over sort of five to sort of seven knots because a you've got to try and envelop the canopy, and then once you're going along, um, you know, as you get the diurnal variation and, and the winds start picking up as, as the sun rises, you want to be able to land at a, as a as a nice safe speed as well. So it's quite a tricky tricky one. I mean, they get some direction control because they can kind of go a bit higher and as the wind backs, so they can kind of get a bit of direction control, but they are literally along for the ride. But an incredible sensation. All I remember is like the hot, hot, hot top of my head singeing every time that they light the burner in the creek of the wicker basket. But other than that, <laughs> there is no other sensation because you're travelling with the wind. No, and the silence, I think, as well up yes. there is unreal. It's so silent. It's crazy. Uh, Gemma, 
Do you want to take it away, Dave? We have this little round called Get to Know Me Round. Okay. And it's uh, so we can tell how incredibly knowledgeable you are. You've probably got a million stories as well that you will never speak publicly <laughs> out loud of things that have happened. But it's always nice to get people to get to know people a, a little bit more. So, Gemma, do you want to take away? Yeah, so these are a few random sort of quick fire questions. Some of them are weather related and then some of them are just very, very random. So what's your favourite season? Oh, now I've changed jobs, I would say autumn. Yeah. Before, <laughs> it never was. So before I used to see the, the fields getting ploughed and going, oh my goodness, right, winter operations, right, let's start training the teams, you know, get the... Whereas, uh, so now I can thoroughly enjoy autumn and the nights drawing in and uh, that's great. Whereas before it was spring because you get, got the other side, but spring the other side of Easter because I've actually had more Easter's disrupted with snow and adverse weather than I have Christmases. Autumn must be quite busy though in terms of the storms that um, impact yeah, but things. Again, selfishly in the type of aviation I'm in, what do you, well, both types of aviation, light aviation, they like to fly in the summer months because it's they need to look out the window and have good weather. Uh, so you're not as busy at work, selfishly. And likewise, at somewhere like, yeah, you know, um, Stansted, where you're more sort of touristy type um, uh, operations. So, you know, there's a lot more flights through the, the uh, summer period. So you've got to the end of the summer. Um, so autumn, you've got to the end of the summer. You, you've now probably got more the, um, the people that don't have children going on all day. But you're in the wind down towards Christmas, but you haven't actually got into the, the really bad weather yet where actually it is starting to affect so you do get obviously the um the, the foggy days um sort of like uh october time but um but it's less disruptive and there's fewer flights to disrupt so yeah you've, you, and you've got over a very busy summer so what's your favorite cloud oh i would say simpson sky so cumulus those little fluffy ones and when i was doing uh weather observations they were the easiest so you could actually through the adiabatics laps right you could work out exactly what height they were because of the temperature so you kind of knew that was an easy one without a, a cloud-based record to work out and plus they look sort of pretty particularly if their streets are queued so if they if they formed over a particular hot so you just see these rows and lines so again if you're a glider pilot that's that's yeah, um, nectar because you, you know you can get some good thermal flare um, for, but also for ones that are really anti-aviation, but really sort of intimidating, but, but good to look at uh, cumulonimbus clouds, particularly when you can see the anvil. So uh, so that the, the top of the cloud has sort of punched through the stratosphere, turned ice and, and is basically getting blown by those higher winds. So oh, when they all go all like capillatacy uh, rather than the yeah. calvus. Yeah, yeah, I know. And normally if you can see that, it's so far away that you're not going to get rained on, but it just looks really impressive. Yeah, you're like, look at that over there. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's not going in our direction, but it's yeah. beautiful to look at. <laughs> yeah. Would you prefer to go to the beach or to the mountains? Uh, for me, and, and growing up in the countryside, so more mountains than beach. Although there are some good beaches where you grew up. Oh, yeah, Devon, Devon is very good. It's just where I am now. It takes It's a nightmare to get around the M25 to get down there. So actually, I've discovered the Norfolk coast, which is equally as good. It's there a bit silty. <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. well i used to uh, when i was at bristol i used to uh, live in western Air for a bit so that is very second highest tidal range to uh, somewhere in nova scotia so uh, yes, oh, wow yes a very silty there hey we haven't asked this question for a while actually but i think it's very apt so snow yes or no oh definitely now yes i, I, I don't want to do my colleagues down but 
because I'm now no longer responsible for it. I would love a snowy day where I can just go and walk in it. I, I do think it is beautiful. I always have said, one year, I had a colleague that had done far more years than me in aviation, and he just said, he went to lap around his daughter, and he just looked at all that snow and just like, this is lovely, and it's someone else's problem. It just, yeah, it is very pretty. Uh, and when I don't actually have to be responsible for clearing it, I would love to just go walking it and enjoy it. Yeah, I know. We always say that. We're like, it's snow when I'm not <laughs> no. working, but when I'm working... Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Oh, crikey. Uh, pineapple. It just amazes me that people immediately answer this question. Everybody answers this question. It's unbelievable. Why well, would you be a pineapple? Well, uh, I guess despite the fact I just said I would choose mountains over the beaches, uh, there used to be uh, lilts uh, used to get advertised. And I always imagined... Um, uh, Lilt with the totally troubled taste and just mending outboard motors on some beach in the Caribbean, um, you know, and being known to the locals. So also, that seems a very idyllic sort of lifestyle and pineapples are involved. So, yeah. yeah, there's time. And unfortunately, I do like it on my pizza occasionally. <gasps> so do I, I, I love it. Hawaiian <laughs> all the way. <laughs> we'll have lots of comments about that controversial yes. pizza, yeah. pizza top in there. <laughs> Okay, so a couple of more questions. So if you could invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any historical time frame or even a fictional character, who would it be? Oh, see, I've had an ideal dinner party and actually um, it was going to be, there would be Stephen Fry there, you know, uh, but it always was going to have Carol Kirkwood as well because we could talk about the weather. So, yes. Yeah, so. They would be some good guests, actually. That would be some good yeah. guests. And our final question is one thing that you wish everybody knew about aviation. It is remarkable and don't take it for granted for, for many different reasons. So we could get into the whole climate change and, and, and where and where it's going. But it, you only need to sort of look back a few generations ago where so few people, so few people got the opportunity to fly and get a window seat, look out the window, look at the weather. When you, you know, on the dullest day, you see the flight crews going out and you just know that at some point they're going to pop out and see see sunshine that day. Um, you know, uh, just, yeah, look at the weather from, from above because there are so many of our ancestors never got that opportunity. Yeah, it is quite unique. So, so I always know that as well. If you've got like a nice blanket of strata queue or queue, mm-hmm. but you will eventually just boop through it. And then randomly in the distance, you'll just see some mad cumulus that for whatever reason, there's oh, one yep. cell yeah. that has just developed into this, on a relatively stable day, this huge cloud. You're like, there's just so much about the atmosphere we don't know. Or can't capture, you know, in um in that much detail. It's fascinating. So we'd like to leave all of our guests with a weather wisdom. So David is going to tell us a little bit about the jet stream and which flight to take from America. Which flight not to take from America, should I say, to arrive into the UK? So when you don't want to take it, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Dave? Yeah. So uh, the jet streams are, um, and they've obviously been in the news recently because that's been causing all the, the extra heat down in uh, in Europe uh, because of where the jet streams are placed. The jet streams actually do aid um, aviation, particularly for coming from America into the UK, because you you can basically travel the jet stream, um, and they can be up to sort of two hundred and twenty odd miles an hour. So it can definitely shorten the flight time uh, coming from uh, west east back into the UK. Um, but obviously. Uh, if they're too good and in the right place, then the uh, the flight, the early morning flights can arrive too early and Heathrow has a, a, a night curfew, so we can't open 
um, before uh, uh, they can accept those, those flights. The early morning flights, and then they get put into the hold. So either the, the pilots have to slow down so they're not burning extra fuel, just holding. Uh, so an afternoon flight can be a bit better for getting straight in and, and maximising that uh, the use of the jet stream. And a fabulous time for drinking champagne. <laughs> oh, well, yes, it, <laughs> yes, depending on which class you're, you're flying, but definitely. <laughs> David, thank you so much for talking to us this evening. We've loved talking to you, taking me a little bit of a memory lane as well with aviation. I love the operation side of an airport, just fantastic but we have really appreciated you being here with us tonight and sharing all of your lovely stories as well thank you thanks for allowing me to uh, join your podcast if you have enjoyed this podcast and would like to subscribe rate review and share it we would love that you can find us on all your podcast um, streaming platforms if you would like to follow us on instagram we are for the love of weather on twitter we are the number four love of weather and we just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more Thanks for listening. Bye.